Today is the second Sunday after Easter. And just like you and I went through a season called Lent before Easter that was 40 days long, getting ready for the resurrection, uh, you, you might remember back and you say, man, that was a tough journey. And, if, and if, if, if that's what you think, then we and the Holy Spirit did our job. But we're now in the season of Easter. And just like Lent was 40 days, actually Easter is 40 days more till the day of ascension when we celebrate the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, took his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, uh, promising to come again to judge the quick and the dead. And then 10 days more after that, we celebrate the day of Pentecost. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I always look for the next, next holiday. I mean, we don't have the Christmas tree away, and I'm already starting to think about Easter. We have Easter, and I'm, for, for, for the life of the church, I'm already looking forward to Pentecost. That's a great day. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. It's the day that we remember uh, when God sent to the church the Holy Spirit, and when the church was unleashed on the world to proclaim God's glory and majesty to all and to call the world into belief. And uh, so, so as we're going through this, what we want to do over the next couple of weeks is to live in the midst of this joyful celebration of the resurrection. We want to look at God's faithfulness. We want to look at what it means uh, to gather, today anyway, what it means to gather to worship. We're people who believe the tomb was empty. We believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And because of that, the world is different. May I just say gently, if, if, if you believe that Jesus died and three days later was raised again, his body glorified, and 40 days after that ascended and sat at the right hand of God the Father and will come again, you, you can't go on life like normal. It's, it's got to be different. We're, the, this great news calls us into a different way of living and a different way of thinking. And as we are looking at these passages in Scripture that lead us through this season of Easter, today the passage we're going to look at is from the book of Revelation. Now, I know that when you hear the book of Revelation, you think about you know bombs and missiles and, and you think about fire and brimstone coming down from heaven. You, you, you have, I mean, when, when people talk about the, they think of Revelation as the end of the world, and, and they say that it's frightening and scary. And, and whenever you hear the book of Revelation, that's the first thing that comes to mind. We're not the first ones to think about this. As a matter of fact, uh, this painting is called the, uh, the, the Last Judgment. It's in the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican in Rome. And it's just, it's, I use the word wonderful carefully. It's this wonderful picture of Jesus, and he's just casting folks down into the pits of burning fire and brimstone. That, aren't you excited to hear the book of Revelation now? Uh, the book of Revelation, the text that we're going to be looking at, actually comes from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. And I want to share this passage with you, and then I want to talk a little bit uh, about this passage of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, and you turn to Revelation chapter 7, it's real easy. Revelation is the last book in your Bible, so just go to the end of your Bible. Some of you are going to say, it says index here, Pastor. Okay, it's before the index. 
Somebody's going to say, well, now there's maps. Okay, it's before the maps, but it's the last book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading in verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, which literally means so be it, or may it be so. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's holy word. May God give to us his blessing and the ability to understand what his spirit will teach us today. Amen. Now, the way we pick names in, uh, for the books of the Bible, people say, how would you come up with, with, with that name? It, it's really kind of easy. Whatever the first few words of the book uh, is in the original language, and as we translate it to Greek, or for, to English from Greek for the New Testament, that's the name of the book. So, for example, and if you were to read uh, the book of Corinthians, it would say, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at Corinth. Oh, Corinth. So that becomes uh, Corinthians. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at Rome. Ah, so we're going to call that Romans. In the, in, in, in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation is, um, in, in the original language, if we were to just give it to you literally, with, with no uh, articles or, or prepositions, it would be this, Apocalypse, Jesus Christ. That's the first two words of the book of Revelation. Apocalypse, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, and you may be, get upset with me, but when I read a book, the author has about a page and a half to catch my attention. If, if, if he hasn't caught my attention in a page and a half, I sort of put, put the book aside and say, I'll get back to that when I have more discipline. Today's not the day. But let me tell if you picked up a book and the first word is apocalypse, you're going to keep reading. <laughs> now, uh, the, the Greek word there, I'm going to teach you some Greek today, is apocalypsis, apocalypsis. So it's, it's really not a translation. So to translate it, 
the word apocalypse in English literally means revelation. And the word revelation literally means to uncover or reveal. I mean, you could think about it. Uh, it would have been a perfectly appropriate way to use this word in the first century. You give somebody a present that's wrapped, and you'd say, apocalypse that present, if you would. You know, unwrap it. Uncover it. See what it is. Now, isn't that a whole different way of understanding this book from how we've been taught by movies and books that, that it's something to be afraid of? I mean, it's, it's, it's intended to be, when John writes this, it's intended to be exciting. I get to see who Jesus is. I, I, I get my confusion lifted up. I, I, I get my fear uh, lifted up so that what's underneath that covering, I can see what it is, and it's going to be good. The book of Revelation is not intended to scare the literally, it's not intended to scare the devil out of you. It's intended to excite you. It's intended to give you hope. It's intended to give you joy. Uh, pastor Drew, he's a worship pastor, worship arts pastor. They, they will tell you that the book of Revelation is the worship book of the early church. Why? Because it shows us, are you ready? It shows us how we worship in heaven. Now that's exciting. If you want to know how we will worship when we come into God's kingdom, all you need to do is the book of Revelation. Because there's this guy named John, and John is the author of this book. Now, you've heard the word John. John is one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. He was the youngest of those 12 disciples. As a matter of fact, some scholars think that he was probably around the age of 12 or 13. I don't know about you. I'm not sure I'm going to let my 12 or 13-year-old son and daughter take off with some itinerant preacher and travel all over the, uh, of Galilee and Nazareth. But that's what scholars tell us. And because John was the youngest, he also lived the longest. And he's the only disciple that was not martyred. That means he was the only disciple who was not executed because he believed in Jesus Christ. Now, church tradition, now that it's not in the Bible, it's just sort of the traditions, the stories that were handed down verbally and were written but weren't a part of our Bible. They weren't canonized. That is, they weren't made the official part of our New Testament. Uh, the church tradition says that they tried to kill, that the Roman government tried to kill John. And the way they tried to execute him is they tried to throw him into a pot of burning oil. And he would not die. It was, he came, as a matter of fact, church tradition says he came out of this cauldron of, of boiling oil unscathed. Not, he didn't even get burned. Now, I don't know if that's true, and it's not in the Bible, so you can say that's, that's not true. But I can tell you this. I do know this. Because John was preaching Jesus Christ, the Roman uh, government exiled him to the island of Patmos, to the island of Patmos. Now, the island of Patmos is an island that's in the Aegean Sea. You can't really see it very well, but it's, it's between what is present-day Turkey and present-day uh, Greece. And Patmos was an island that the Romans would send political dissidents, people who were causing a lots of problems for the Roman government, but they hadn't committed a, 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 a crime worthy enough to be executed. They just sent them to the island of Patmos, and they had stationed Roman guards at the various ports and around the island of Patmos so they couldn't get out, and so they could not communicate with their followers 
in any of the other parts of the Roman Empire. It was simply a way to silence people who were causing problems from the Roman Empire. And so this is what they did with John. They, they exiled him to the island of Patmos, and, uh, but, and, 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 and he communicates with Christians outside of the island, but he has to do it in such a way that the Roman officials who are looking at all of the kinds of communication uh, don't think that he's causing any problems. And so now you can understand, if you read the book of Revelation and you're a Roman guard, you're thinking, this dude is nuts. He's crazy. What is all this stuff? Signs and seals and symbols and trumpets? And so the Roman guards just said, okay, you can, you can, we'll, we'll, we'll send a letter to the mainland. And what's so wonderful about this is, is that God, in, in revealing these visions to John and, and allowing John to, to write them down and to send them forth, was intended to bring hope to other Christians because there was stuff that was going on with the other Christians is that, that they were suffering significant and severe persecution. Christians were having a, a, a horrific time. Now, now I want to share this with you. We, we just finished up celebrating Easter, or the day, the day of resurrection, Resurrection Sunday. And, and I, these Christians were willingly subjecting themselves to persecution, to martyrdom, to death, because they believed Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, a lot of folks will tell you, you know, that's a story that they made up, that the first century Christians made up to give some sort of uh, power to, to, to their message, and, but no one really believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Are you, are you telling me? Just think about yourself. Would you be willing to die for a lie? I wouldn't. It's one of the proofs for me that cements in my mind that Jesus was literally, bodily, raised from the dead, his body glorified. You see, if you really believe that, if you really believe that Jesus was executed, died, was in the tomb three days, raised again, glorified, walked and talked with his disciples for 40 days, ascended into heaven, sat at the right hand of God, and from there he'll come to judge the living and the dead someday, you can't go on living life like you're normally living it. That's a monumental claim. That's a monumental claim. And these Christians were suffering. As a matter of fact, their suffering sort of irritated the Romans. Yeah, I mean, this is a famous painting about the first martyrs. And um, the, the, the Romans got really frustrated because one of the ways that you were executed is, is that you would be thrown into a, a stadium and forced to fight gladiators to the death. And Christians wouldn't fight. The gladiators would just walk up to them and slaughter them. And so what happened is, is that the Romans said, well, we can't use them to fight the gladiators because the stupid Christians won't fight. They just, take, they just receive the sword. So what the Romans did is, is they, they... Remember the cartoons before, back at least when I was young, before the movie came on? At the movie theater, they'd show a quick cartoon or, or the previews uh, of, the, uh, of the upcoming movies. And isn't it interesting? They always take the best scenes of the upcoming movie and put in the preview. You go to see the movie, and you're like, man, this wasn't as good as the preview. That's why I just watch previews. I never spend the money on the movies. <laughs> so the killing of Christians became the preview for the main show. 
And so what they do is, is they gather the Christians into the, into the stadium and, and, and they'd raise these great iron great gates and suddenly uh, lions and, and tigers and bears would come out and they would just maul the Christians as the crowd cheered. I mean, this is how pathetic it is. I mean, I'm bringing it up to our standards. It's sort of like, oh, this is the previews. Do you, do you want me to get you a hot dog and, and, a, and a Coke at the stand? I'll be right back. I mean, that's what it was. Killing Christians was just not a big deal. It was something to take time before the real show started. Even worse, and you can't really see it uh, very well, but if you go online and look for this painting, you, they took Christians and they tied them to poles, covered them with pitch, and set them on fire. And people reveled in this. This is how depraved the culture was in the first century. People say how depraved our culture is. It's, we're significantly better than the Roman Empire was near the end of its days. This is what John is writing. This is to whom John is writing this letter. He's sending this letter to folks like that. So this, this letter is intended to give them hope. Now, with all of that information, perhaps now we should read, have read the Scripture, because now suddenly it is a completely different context in which we're hearing this story. And the first thing that's really powerful to me in this story the, 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 the eternal truth that I pray uh, that you'll leave this place with is, is that John being revealed, having Jesus revealed to him, uncovered, walking into the very throne room of God. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, you know, in the, in the White House, in the Oval Office, there's that big desk. It's called the Resolute Desk. And there's a long history about that desk. And, and all the pictures of presidents in the White House have them sitting at that desk on a phone, handling big prob global problems. I wonder if the throne room of God is like that. You know, God conferring with, with the angels and the heavenly hosts. Say, well, we got this problem down here. and we got, How should we figure that? That's not what's going on in the throne room of grace. That's why what goes on in the Oval Office in the White House. But it's not what goes on in the throne of grace. Maybe, maybe it's sort of like, you know, the situation room, you know, where all the generals and admirals and, and, and the military are, are trying to figure out where should we position our troops and how should we, we should engage in, in defending our country or, or engaging with another country. You know, maybe we can picture God saying, all right, Michael, I want you to take a battalion of angels and go this way, and Gabriel, you take a battalion. That's not going on. You know what's going on in the throne of grace? Worship. That's what's going on in the throne of grace. That's a powerful image. And what's even more powerful about this image for me is, is that John uses this phrase of the throne and the lamb interchangeably throughout that text. You go back and read that text. As a matter of fact, at, in, in, near the end of what I read today, it said that the lamb, that is Jesus Christ, was in the midst of the throne. It's a clear image that Jesus is God. That's, that's one of the significant claims of Christians. That Jesus is the, is the Son of God, yes, but he's also God the Son. And this is important in Christian understanding, is, is that we believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is one God. Now, some of you English majors said you didn't use your verb and subject tense correctly. Exactly. And you might say, that makes absolutely no sense. Well, here's a little tool to, uh, help for you as you try to figure out and dig deeper into Scripture, dig deeper into Christian teaching. If it doesn't make sense, it's probably true. But the truth is, is, is that God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are God. 
Jesus is God. That is a revolutionary claim. One of the other eternal truths that comes from this scripture is is that the gospel is bigger than cultures or customs. When John begins this section of his letter as he's writing this and he's describing what he's saying, I mean, how how would you do this? After I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. I'm I'm almost done reading a book called Why I'm a Hindu. It was written by a a Hindu delegate from India to the United Nations, and he's writing this book about Hinduism. And he says in his book that Hinduism is not just a religion, it's a civilization. That is, Hinduism is a specific way of doing government and culture together. Islam is a religion that says government should reflect the tenets of Islam. Islam is about cultural change. Even Judaism, our forebears, if you go back and you read the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, the majority of it is about nation-building, about building a civilization. But Christianity is none of those things. You can wear any kind of clothes that you want and be a Christian. You can speak any kind of language and be a Christian. You can eat any kind of food and be a Christian. You can worship any way that you want to worship and be a Christian. And so you can go to a Greek Orthodox church with all of their gold and all of their robes and their chanting and their incense, and that's worship. You can go to a tent revival in some rural county of the United States of America with the great hymns being sung, Amazing Grace, and Old Rugged Cross, and it's worship. And you can come to South Suburban Christian Church with our uniqueness, our in-between between those two things, and it's worship. You see, you can leave here today and you can say, I, I, didn't, I didn't really like that chorus that we sang Sunday. And if Pastor Drew overheard that, he'd say, that's great. I really like green beans. They laughed more at the first service, didn't they? <laughs> but that is true. That's what he would say. I love that. That's my new favorite phrase. Because you know why? It doesn't matter whether you like the, the, the praise song. It doesn't matter if you think the preacher should be in a coat and tie or jeans. By the way, I don't even own a pair of jeans. I do all my yard work in khakis. And a tie. But it's my yard work tie, so it doesn't count. No lie, I actually have what I call formal and my informal ties, don't I, Shauna? Yeah, this is a kind of informal guy. I think I wear more than my informal ties. You see, worship is more... As we're getting an image of, of this scene with all of these folks, the worship isn't about the style. The worship here is, is, is not about the language. It's not about what they're wearing. Because they're all wearing white robes. That's significant. I hope you're in a small group because you're actually going to talk about this week in the small group notes. If you're not in small group, you need to get into a small group. And secondly, if you say, oh, I can't do this, you need to stop and pick up some of the questions that are out in the welcome area because you can, you'll learn a little bit more about that. You know what's important about worship? It's the one to whom we are focused. That's what's important about Christian worship. It is that Jesus Christ, it is the Lamb, it is the throne of God that is our focus. 
whether, whether you're wearing robes uh, with gold, whether you're speaking Armenian or Arabic or English, uh, whether you're white or black or, or Asian, it doesn't matter. What brings us together isn't how we live together. What brings us together is the one to whom we are worshiping, the one whom we are adoring, the one, are you ready, who has been faithful. You see, that's what's important. That's what we celebrate. You see, because as these folks are gathering, as the elders and the angels and the living creatures and and all that is around the throne of God are worshiping, they all have something in common. Matter of fact, the elder comes to John and says, do you know who these people are? John says, I'm sure you know. And the elder says, these are the ones who have come through the great ordeal. Now imagine if you're one of those Christians in the Colosseum. You know, it's hard, I'll admit. It's hard to remember that God is faithful when you hear the clanking of the iron fence as it is raised. It's hard to believe that God is faithful when in the belly of the Colosseum you hear the roars of a lion echo up through the chamber and out into the stadium area. It's hard to remember that God is faithful when you see the beasts come towards you with their teeth bared and their claws extended. It's hard to remember that God is faithful when you feel the bite of the tiger when the bear's claw comes down on you and cuts your flesh. It's hard to remember that God is faithful in the midst of your trials and the struggles that you have and all of the junk that life throws at you. But these saints, in this moment, in this place, having come through the ordeal, knew that God was faithful. You see, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ has already given us a new life. It's already been given to you. It's already yours. It's not an issue of you saying, Lord, when are you going to give me the power of of resurrection? This is probably a better question. Lord, when am I going to recognize that you've already given me the power of resurrection? You know, I get irritated sometimes when when people use words from the Bible and they, 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 they interpret them wrongly because of cultural pressure. Because the, the eternal truth, the, the application of the eternal truth is, is that God has called me and you into a new direction. And the church has an old word that we use for that. And you know what it is? It's the word repent. Now, if I had said to you, we have been called to repent, a whole bunch of images would have come into your mind. You know, because we understand repenting of feeling sorry for the bad things that we've done. And you know what? That's not what the word repent means. It's not. It may be how a lot of people understand it, but it's not what it means. Here's what the word repent literally means. I'm walking down the road, and I stop 
and I repent. That's what the word literally means. The word literally means to stop going in this direction and go into another direction. Repent means to stop following my own path and follow the path that God has made for me. Stop following my own desires and follow that which God desires for me. To stop going in the direction that is taking me away from joy, away from hope, away from grace, away from mercy, and turning around and coming back to God who pursues us. Now you're used to these little things up on the screen and there's the empty line and then I give you the answer, right? I always see that when I change the slide, all of you go. Because <laughs> if you're like me, you cannot go home without all the lines filled in. You may not remember it, but by goodness, I have the lines filled in. So here's the challenge. I don't have an answer for you. So if you're the kind of person that needs to leave with all the lines filled in, you've got to fill that line in yourself today. Because God is calling all of us, you and me, to something, to someone. God has a plan and a destiny for your life. God has a plan and destiny for South Suburban Church. And God is faithful. Not only that, but God has been faithful. And God will always be faithful. I want to invite Pastor Drew forward to speak to us. We're going to tag team this message today and hear his testimony about things that we have seen in this place where it has been proven that God is faithful. Hey, good morning again. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about when we, when, when we were looking at this, this text during the week and about the worship of God's people, I was reflecting back on the last couple of months and uh, just the, the fact that, that so many of us were able to gather together, especially during Holy Week for Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. And so many of you have come up since then and have said how meaningful those services were. You know, boy, the the songs that we sang and just the, the stuff that we focused on in those services. And as I thought about that, as I thought about the feedback that we got, it really distilled down to this. What I heard you saying as a church was that you experienced God in this place. That he had done something and met you in a way that was significant and that was meaningful uh, essentially, what I heard you say was that God has been faithful. He's been faithful to show up and meet us here. Um, that's a big deal. Do you know that? That's a big deal. Because uh, I, 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 know, I don't know about you guys, but I know for, for, for my family, um, it matters that, that when we get together, with other people who are doing their best to follow Jesus, that in some way we feel as though we've encountered God and been reminded of his faithfulness. Uh, my wife Sarah was at, the, was at the first service today, and um, 
some of you know a little bit of our story um, and just some of, the, some of the health stuff that we've walked through with, with our daughter and, and uh, that that has been probably the, the, the biggest thing of our last 10 years in life. And there have been times I know for us that we've shown up to church and we are fresh out of words. Like we got nothing left to pray. And we walk in the door on Sunday and we found that when we don't have anything to pray, you guys pray for us. And when we've run out of words, it's been our brothers and sisters on our left and on our right and in front of us and behind us who can sing praise and can sing prayer for us. And that has been so powerful because you know what it's done? For our family, it's reminded us that God's faithful. And it's really freed us up not to feel like we gotta have everything all together (laughs) when we walk into church. You know, that we don't have to be all cleaned up for God to show up. And I, I, hope that, I hope that encourages you um, because th- there's nothing special about standing on the platform. In fact, it makes it scarier sometimes because <laughs> I, I know myself and, and I know some of the, some of the things that, that, that we walk through in life and, and, and to be able to come in here, especially in those moments where you feel as though you've gone through a great ordeal or perhaps even this morning, you're in the midst of it. <laughs> it can be so encouraging and such a reminder of God's faithfulness when you have run out of words and when you don't know how to pray, that you got people in this room who can stand up around you and can pray and can carry that burden for you, can sing the song that isn't in your heart that morning. It's powerful, it's powerful. And as we continue to worship together, keep, I mean, keep showing up, people. <laughs> keep showing up. Because some mornings, you are gonna be the prayer of hope that someone in this place needs. Other mornings, you're gonna need someone to sing on your behalf. And that's the power of gathering together to worship. Amen? Amen. Amen.